And so now, O oh Lord, we ask, would you um, visit us right now, even as we read this passage and study and learn more about your death for us? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your cross. And impress upon us today on this Good Friday how good it is that you love us in this way. We ask this for your glory's sake and that we might be transformed in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been in um, John's Gospel in chapter 18 and chapter 19, which together could be said to make up what's called the Passion Narrative. Have you ever heard that um, used of these passages in John's Gospel or the uh, comparable passages in the other Gospels? And I'm going to just put up for you on the board um, what those passages are. But while I do that, um, do you see how I have context? Do you see what's the first thing I have on your handout under context? Jesus being of the Jews. Or even the first, oh, yeah, I'm Jesus in control. Oh, no, 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 no. So what was, do you remember what I've been talking about regarding that? It, at, when we looked at chapter 18, do you remember in chapter 18 what happened? Jesus was, they went out from the upper room. Jesus, they went across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what happened there? Jesus is arrest, betrayed and arrested, right? But is there... Yeah, remember that in the other Gospels, how does the betrayal and arrest happen? It happens all together. And remember that specifically in the other Gospels, that's where Judas kisses Jesus to identify him for these arresting soldiers so that they can go and get the right man. And John doesn't tell us that at all. John is showing us that Jesus, is, it's no accident. Jesus is not helpless in this situation, but rather Jesus is in control. Everything that is happening and that will happen in these two chapters is a part of God's will. It's a part of the bigger picture and God's plan for salvation. And John is slightly um, just he's not, it's not that he's changing and telling us something different that happened just that as he tells us what happens um, it's a little bit different from the way that Matthew, Mark and Luke tell it and it's because he wants us to be clear on that fact that this is all a part of God's plan and God's purposes for salvation so get, uh, there are a couple of other different things throughout even if you just look back in scripture to um, chapter 18 do you remember if there's anything else um, that kind of fits into that theme of Jesus being co- in control of what's going on around him. What else happens that shows that he's in control? He's no shrinking violet. He's not afraid. Um, he's not a victim. They ask him if he's the Messiah and he, or the one that's chosen or whatever, and he says, you have said Yes, and that's actually, that's actually, you're so good, Barbara, you're remembering that off the top of your head. That is, that's amazing that you remember that. Did you write it down? Yeah, I did. That's something, too, that... In my forehead, could you read it? (laughs) That's something that Jesus says before the high priest in uh, Matthew and Mark, especially, and he's saying, you've said it, it's true. And what's really neat, too, in John, um, Annas is questioning him and says, I want to know about your disciples. I want to know about um, your teaching. And Jesus totally deflects his question. He says, he doesn't say anything about his disciples. Remember, because he is protecting his disciples in the garden just a few minutes, you know, just a little while earlier, a few verses ahead. 
or back in chapter 18, he says, let these men go in order to fulfill what he said earlier, that not one of the sheep of his flock have been harmed, that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for, for the sheep. And that's what he says in the garden to the soldiers. He says, let these men go. They have, you have nothing, you know, you don't need them for anything. Um, so he's so in control there. He has said in the garden too, I am he. And remember, he goes forward boldly to these soldiers and says, what are you looking for? Well, I'm he. None of this passive shrinking in a corner in the garden and waiting for them to find him out. He's not hiding. He comes forward boldly and goes to his arrest boldly. And then before the high priest, not only does he deflect and protect his disciples, but he also says, you want to know about my teaching? Why don't you ask any of the people who heard? He is not just giving this man what he wants to hear. He's, he's a little bit saucy. He's strong. He's bold. And we see that before Pontius Pilate, too, at the end of chapter 18, before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate asks Jesus a question, and how does Jesus answer that first question that Pilate asks him? Pilate asks in verse 29, what accusation, oh no, that's, no, that's to the, sorry, no, 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 he, it's verse he 33. I have said nothing in secret. Yeah, he says, you, you go figure it out, it's all out there, you can figure it out, I can't. And honestly, within the Jewish law, you couldn't be made to testify against yourself. And Jesus knows the law, and he's saying, you can't ask me this. You can't use my testimony against me. It's kind of cool that he knows the law, and he is sticking to the law. Um, but in verse 33, 1833, Pilate enters his headquarters again and calls Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And how does Jesus respond? He's not cowering and saying, let me tell you everything. What is he doing? He's, it's like he's boldly standing. He's answering a question with a question, which is very Jewish of him, but it's also deflecting. He's just, you're not going to get anywhere, guy. You have nothing against me. He's very bold. He's very strong. He is in control. Um, and we're going to see in chapter 19 how that continues, that theme is going to continue. Jesus is no victim, even when he goes to the cross. Um, again, then looking at chapter 19 in verses 4 through 6, we see um, how Pilate, the earthly judge, um, believes that he is going to judge Jesus. He says, um, he says when Jesus is quiet, he says to him, do you, will you not speak to me? Do you not know? I'm looking at verse 10 of chapter 19. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers boldly. You, again, you've got nothing on me. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You, you are really not the one who's judging me. It might appear to Pilate as though he is the one who's going to pass judgment on Jesus, whether Jesus will live or die in that moment. But Jesus is pointing to a, a greater reality, a higher level of truth, which we know about because we've been reading along in John's Gospel. We know that Jesus is the Word who was with God in the beginning, who is God, who um, is knows all things, who's one with the Father. And we know that... Um, so because of that, Jesus has a greater authority over this man 
who perceives himself to be a judge, and yet he will be judged based on how he judges Jesus. And Jesus throughout scripture is called the judge. We know that at the last day, um, we'll be raised and we'll stand before him in the final judgment. And so Jesus is judge in a higher sense, in an eternal sense, even though this man has been given a small amount of temporal authority. Jesus, the judge, submits to this earthly lesser judgment, and he is judged in our place because we are the ones who ought to be standing before Pilate. And yet Jesus allows himself to stand for us. And through his, him undergoing this judgment, that we are then exonerated, right? Jesus takes upon himself the judgment um, for, for the sin of the world when he goes to the cross. Our judgment is placed on him. So the judge is judged in verses 4 through 16 of John's gospel. We also see in verses 1 through 3, what do they do in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 19 as you look back on that passage? They beat him. They give him a crown of thorns. And a purple robe. What does purple signify? Do you remember? Royalty. Right. I know. Isn't it amazing? There's Jesus. They take off his regular clothes. They put on a royal purple robe. They put a crown on his head. He has a crown of thorns. And they mock him. They, um, in, a, in a coronation, in a histor- you know, when a king is crowned, and in the ancient time when a king was crowned, there would be these acclamations where people would say, Hail to the new king, newly crowned king, and they would bend the knee and honor him and honor the new king as a way of showing their allegiance. These soldiers are doing that, but they're doing it in a mocking way. They're mocking him, and they're mocking him with the charge against him. Hail, king of the Jews. It's hard to watch that, isn't it? And yet, you know what we know? We know that Jesus is the true king. And this mocking coronation here in verses 1 through 3 it prefigures and it foreshadows the time when Jesus will be king over all and the whole world will recognize his kingship. Um, in Philippians, Paul talks about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day when Jesus returns, even those men who mocked him, um, in a, it called him king in a mocking way, they too will one day see the truth about Jesus. Everyone will see the truth about Jesus. And all knees will bow and all tongues confess him to be Lord. So he is the true king of the earth, not just king of the Jews. And he is here crowned in this moment. Even though it's in a mocking way, we know the truth while we're, while we're hearing this and reading this in John's gospel. It's beautiful. His humility is so beautiful in this moment that he, knowing the truth about himself, would submit to this kind of mockery uh, on our behalf in order to bring about salvation. So the judge is judged and the king is crowned. And in that moment where the king is crowned, um, the other gospel writers talk about this as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this crowning of Jesus. But then they say, 
Oh, and then the soldiers put his regular clothes back on him before, he's j- before he goes on to Golgotha. John does not mention that. That's one of the things we're going to see. John does not mention that Jesus' regular clothes were put back on him. So we don't know what John is envisioning, but it's almost as though he wants us to have this visual image of Jesus crowned, the king, still wearing that purple robe, going to Golgotha. He's stately, even in his suffering. And it's a beautiful thing. So we're going to read right now. We're going to read starting at verse 16. And my verse 16 is divided up. I bet yours is. Um, And mine starts with the title, um, The Crucifixion, right in the middle of verse 16. So I'm going to start right there. We're going to read all the way on to the end of chapter 19 to verse 42. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews then said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts, excuse me, took his garments and made four parts, one share for each soldier, and also the tunic, the long shirt-like undergarment. But the tunic was seamless, wasn't in one piece, from the top throughout. So they said to one another, Let us not carry it but let us cast lots to decide who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, and departed my garments to my and upon my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did this. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clotus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her into his own family. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of thistle and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from mingling with cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. 
and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it as born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus. Taking Jesus' body. The two of them laughed it, and with the spices he stripped the linen. This was the in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been made, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. There's nothing in here about God's forsaken me or anything. I know. What about that? It was really interesting because uh, the reading that we had yesterday morning, the scriptures told in in uh, Psalms 20. Yeah. Yeah. All the suffering that Jesus was going to take, and the fact that he said, Why he forsaken me? But he says nothing of this in me. I know. Psalm 22, um, well, first of all, the early church understood understood Jesus' crucifixion in light of Psalm 22. Jesus himself understands his crucifixion in light of Psalm 22. Remember that for the educated Jewish male, they practically, I mean, they memorized scripture so much. The fact that Jesus quotes Psalm 22 from the cross is a sign of his, he really knows his Bible. And he's interpreting what is happening to him in light of Psalm 22, which is incredible when you read Psalm 22. And I'm not even going to go into it because I think that Andrew's preaching on Psalm 22 later on today. So even if you're not able to make it to the noonday service, listen to the audio if you can online. I have, I'm confident it will be a wonderful sermon because, because of Psalm 22. But you're right, Barbara, in that... Um, and I'm going to put this up here. I'm going to, you'll see in a minute why it pertains to what you're talking about. But in the other, I think it's always helpful. Tell me if you can't see the board. Can you all see the board? I think it's, mm, oh, I just lost my wheel. Yeah. Whatever. Um, the, I think it's helpful to look at, can you see this marker too? It's not a great. No? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Can you see it? Let me find a better one. It's a little faint. Not that one. Matthew, I'm going to give you the parallel passages in the other Gospels. 
Matthew 27, and we won't read them all right now, but if you're ever curious, it's really helpful to read them together and understand them um, in light of each other. So Matthew 27, verses 32 through 61. Mark 15, verses 21 through 47. And Luke 23, uh-oh, 26. And I didn't get the last verse on that for some reason. Anybody want to help me? Yeah, it's all the way through. If we went to 56, we would go to the end of the chapter. So Luke 23, 26 through 56. So when we look at these verses, if we were to compare them and to put them all up next to each other, which I did already, I won't, reco- I won't have us do this now, although I know you kind of like to do it. If you want to do this on your own, it's really a fun, well, especially with this passage, I don't know that fun's the best way of doing it. It's really insightful, really helpful to see who talks about what. But let me just say that um, Matthew and Mark the only words that they have Jesus saying from the cross are Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, right? Which are, um, that's the um, Hebrew or Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is both in Matthew and in Mark, and that is the only thing that you hear Jesus saying from the cross. Have you heard of any other words of Jesus from the cross? Have you ever heard a sermon series or read something about the seven last words? Jesus' seven last words from the cross? Well, that's only one. How many last words do we have in John's Gospel? Again, here's where the red letter Bible really helps out. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. What does he say? It is. I know. So that's one of the words. That's another one. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Can you think of any others? I thirst. I thirst is in John. Right? We see that in John. What else? Yep, there are seven. I'm going to put John down here. Yes, to Mary. Dear woman, here is your son. Yep, that is from John. Yes, uh, that kind of counts as one when they count seven words. Yeah. 
What's that? That's right, yeah. I think Mike Andrew did a Sunday school class or some, something on Southern Words from the Cross. I bet he did. Last year or a year before last. It, it's a common thing to do. Um, hang on. Where is it? When the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. That's a great question. That is only... That's not in it's only in Matthew and Mark. Right. You didn't hear it just now, did you? You know, the Passion of the Cross was on last night. Was oh, it? it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the centurion cries out, surely this was the Son of God. What station did you have? Oh, that thing from Tuscaloosa that's a religious station of four... That's the mm-hmm. Well, it just depends on where you Well, it just depends on the cable, I think. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm adding it in. Do you see me adding it in? There are a lot of Jesus films based yeah. on the Passion. Okay, so what we see, we have Matthew and Mark both have... Jesus quoting Psalm 22. Luke has Jesus saying of those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He also shows, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about those who were crucified with Jesus along with those who were passing by and the religious leaders all mocking Jesus, saying, come down from there. If you are who you say you are, um, and making fun of him. And you see in Luke, we hear the content of the thieves' mockery. And remember that there's the one thief who's repentant, um, who says, uh, we, we deserve this punishment, but he is an innocent man. And then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say in return to him? This day, day you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, so what do you see about this? Here's one. Luke has two, three, four. John's giving us a lot more information, isn't he? It's like he already knows some of these other accounts, and he's saying, yes, all that, sure, but don't forget about this. Let me bring this to your attention. Five, six. So there we see seven last words, and in John, specifically the word to um, Mary and to the beloved disciple, who really probably is John the Evangelist. Um, Behold your son, and behold your mother. And then um, he says, I thirst, and we're going to talk about each one of these individually. And then he says, it is finished. But first, before we go in further depth to looking at what um, Jesus says, I think it's important to look at what is said about Jesus. What is written about Jesus in John's Gospel? It's in each one of the Gospels, but again, John gives us more information about it. What is on the placard over his head? King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And remember that this was the charge against him. 
when there was a crime and someone was punished publicly for it, very often he would be um, he would wear a sign or a sign would be posted nearby so that everyone knew not to do what he had done. But what is going on? The other three Gospels tell us that this was over Jesus' head, that there was a sign that said, King of the Jews, but John gives us more information about how it got there and why it stayed there. Do you see what it says? What does it say about the religious leaders? And their, what's their complaint to Pilate? Do you see that? Do not write the king yeah. of the Jews, but this man said, Right. He claimed to be king of the Jews. He claimed to be king of the Jews, but he's not. And what does Pilate say to them? What I have written, I have written. Do you remember from last week that Pilate and the Jewish leaders are kind of sparring back and forth? And that the Jewish leaders have really pushed him and goaded him, hounded him into securing Jesus' execution. They've threatened him even with disloyalty to Rome. And so here you see Pilate getting the last word. You've, you've, he really doesn't like that he had to do this, but he felt as though he had to do this. We know he didn't have to do this, even though it's a part of God's will and God's plan. There could have been a way out for him. But yet, even so, he's trying to get one last jab into these Jewish leaders and he says, what I have written, I have written. And there's a note of finality about that. He will not be pushed or moved any longer. But there's something beyond just this interaction between Pilate and the Jewish leaders that John is trying to show us. What is John showing us? What else is said about this title? What do you notice? It's in three languages. What three languages? Do you remember? Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. Aramaic was spoken by Hebrew Jews. Greek was spoken by Hellenistic Jews and by just about everyone else in the Roman Empire. It was really the lingua franca, like the English of the world at that time, while Latin was the official language of Rome. Uh, even though the Roman soldiers were probably speaking Greek, Latin was still the official language. Anybody who knew how to write who was passing by Golgotha, would, or who knew how to read in whatever language they knew how to read, they would be able to read the sign and read this title associated with Jesus. And there's a significance in that, that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the whole world, and that will be revealed. Jesus' kingdom is for people of all nations. All nations... Um, through faith in him, are grafted in to being a part of the people of God. And John is pointing forward to that truth by mentioning this detail and showing us how universal the scope of Jesus' kingdom actually is. Any thoughts about that as we move on to another point? I think it's kind of cool. Sorry if I get, I get all geeked out on the particulars. It's really neat that there is this true, this is what's happening in the natural, and yet there's this higher plane, this theological reality, that Jesus truly is who he says he is. He truly is even the king of the Jews and beyond that, the king for the whole world. Um, so what I have written, I have written. We find out in John that the soldiers, I'm moving on now into verse 23, the soldiers 
took his garments and divided them. We hear that in the other Gospels. They divide them and they cast lots for them. But the other Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't tell us as much as John tells us. John tells us even more. John tells us not just um, that they cast lots, but why they cast lots. Apparently, um, there must have only been four soldiers there. They divided the clothing into four parts, so they each got one part. That's how we learned there were four soldiers that crucified Jesus. But there was a fifth piece of clothing, and this piece of clothing was so valuable because it was seamless that they didn't want to ruin it by cutting it up and dividing it among them. So they cast lots for it in order to figure out who would get it. And that fulfills the scripture which says, They cast lots for my clothing. They divided my garments among them. If you want to just leave your hand in John 19, and if you can flip back to Psalm 22. The other gospel writers allude to this reference, but they don't quote it directly. When you get to Psalm 22, look at verse 18. Would someone read verse 18? They divided my garments among them, and for my remnants they cast lots. Mm-hmm. So there's this fulfillment of Psalm 22, and and that um, John is understanding and interpreting what has actually happened to Jesus in light of Psalm 22. And the the, um, first Christians continued to do that, even as Jesus himself did that and understood um, what was going on with him in light of Psalm 22. So the soldiers did these things, and I'm moving on to verse 25, where we find out about the other women. Again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that the women were standing far off at a distance. Maybe there were some other women who were far off at a distance. But here we see Four women right there at Jesus' feet, right by the cross, close enough to hear his words. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. His mother goes unnamed in this gospel. And his mother's sister, we're not sure what her name is, but there's another woman named Salome who's there as well. And most people think that Salome is Mary's sister. Mary and Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Mary's sister, mother, John. Yeah, John. I was just getting good. good Elizabeth. No, John. Elizabeth's the mom of John the Baptist. Oh, the Baptist. Yeah. Mary Kate, Salome, and Mary's sister same, are thought to be the same woman. And Salome is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So oh. she's the wife of Zebedee. And John and James are her sons. So if you can do a quick family tree in your mind, what does that make Jesus and John and James? First cousins. Isn't that incredible? Mary the wife do you ever think Clopas. about that? Yeah. Clopas, we're not entirely sure who Clopas is, is, Clopas is but if you go back to... The mother, I mean, the, the wife of Zebedee, is that what you're saying? No, the one before her. See, it says, his, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Some people think that Mary's Mary, sister, but why would a family name two daughters Mary? That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, that's why most people think that they're talking about four women here. Mary, Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay. And so Mary's sister in the other Gospels, we think, is the one, the other Gospels mention a woman named Salome, 
And so we think that this unnamed woman in John's Gospel is Salome. So we think that Mary is there, along with her sister, who's the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who go totally unmentioned in this Gospel. John does not mention himself or his brother, so it would make sense that he wouldn't mention his mother by name either. But how interesting that John also is standing there. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, remember that the beloved disciple is most likely to be John the Evangelist, standing nearby. Well, first of all, we don't hear of any men in the other Gospels nearby. But remember that there was another disciple who followed Jesus in John's Gospel, follows Jesus while he's arrested, gets in even to the high priestly place, and um, is there during the trial. He's there at the foot of the cross. And Jesus says to him, um, Behold your mother. And to his mother he says, Behold your son. And so John, we think that John is entrusted with Mary's care. And indeed, church tradition holds that Mary's tomb is in the city of Ephesus, which was in Asia, Asia Minor and is one of the big churches that we know that John founded and oversaw. How interesting. He took her with him where he went as he preached the gospel, and there she was buried in Ephesus. Was Joseph dead at this time? We, most, most people think that Joseph has died, which is why he's not mentioned. Well, that, that is Roman Catholic tradition because they believe that whenever it mentions Jesus' brothers and sisters, a lot of Catholic tradition will say, well, that's from Joseph's first marriage so that Mary is a perpetual virgin. She, she, you know, they didn't have any other children together. Um, but that is not necessarily, we don't know for sure that that's true. That was kind of a construction to help deal with a per, the, you know, kind of perpetual virginity mm-hmm, of, Jesus, of Mary. Well, I've never heard that before. I know. Isn't that funny? Well, they, I mean, they always venerate the virgin. You know, yeah. Which, you know, I, and I've never believed, you know, I always read that he had brothers. Yeah. yeah, and I thought they were from Joseph. You've always, uh, see, I'm hearing two things. You've always thought that they were his whole brothers. And, and um, you both thought they were not at all biologically related, but they were a biological no. offspring of Joseph. Or offspring of Joseph no, and Mary. No, I thought they were from Mary and Joseph. Yeah. No, the the Roman Catholics very, say pretty certainly. No, they'll the they'll Catholic say, version. They, yeah, what exactly. Is our, version? our version is that anything's possible either way. But I okay. actually really believe that, the, and the Protestant version really truly is, she did not have to be a perpetual virgin. For, for the, we don't need to hold on to that theological construction. And the witness of scripture, it's doing a little bit of gymnastics to get there to say the Roman Catholic belief. So the plain sense of scripture would say that Jesus' brothers were indeed his brothers from Mary, but brothers she and sisters. Be if she had relations with Joseph and had other children. Is that what the Catholic thing? I'm not sure about that. And, and, um, and so rather, I'd, we only have 15... Yeah, yeah. It's not and it's tradition, but it's not really biblical. Yeah, and like I, I'm is the holy, you know, that Mary was born of a virgin, and her mother Anne. Like yeah, Anne. they. Yeah, so even the heaven are heavenly. Yeah, like it's there now that talks about holy Anne. And yeah, we there's never really a, no. So they believe that in order to be, um, in order to not. This is kind of, this is a bunny trail that I, I'm recognizing we only have 15 more minutes. And I'd love, to focus, <laughs> I'd love to focus back on the cross of Jesus today. But ask me again about this, and we'll talk about 
perpetual virginity of Mary, is that true, is that not true, and also original sin, how does Jesus not have original sin, what does the Catholic Church believe about that, but let's look right now, let's go back to the crucifixion, there Jesus, even in this last moment, uh, last moments of his life, he is concerned about the welfare of his mother, um, so that's one of his words here from the, from the cross. The second word um, in this word, John tells us, is to fulfill the scripture. He says, I thirst. And we um, don't hear Jesus saying this word in the other Gospels, but we do see the effect of this word upon those around them. In the other Gospels, that we do find out that they give him sour wine, which was apparently there to slake the thirst of these dying men on the cross. Um, and... They give him this sour wine, and he drinks. We think he drinks it in this. And in another one, like Matthew, I don't. They gave it. They didn't give it to him because they were going to see what happened next before they gave it. Yeah, they, they just stopped telling what happens. I see that as a pause in the narration. John seems to be con- filling up the na- completing it. That's a kind of a gap in their narration that John, I think, is is filling. And the most important thing about this, well, first of all, there are psalms that talk about thirsting um, there's um, and there's some sense in which it could be a quote from Psalm 69 talking about I thirsted and they gave me sour wine I was thirsty but they gave me sour wine and that was a bad thing but I, I prefer the interpretation of someone who looks to Psalm 42 2 um, and which there are a couple of Psalms that talk about thirsting for the presence of God There are few of them, and I really think that that might be, I think Jesus is actually thirsty, but the fulfillment of scripture is that Jesus is thirsting for the presence of God. Um, He will soon be um, with the Father. His work will soon be finished. Um, So this word from the cross, actually, he is getting something to drink, and it seems as though this sour wine, when he receives it, he now has a little more of an ability to say this last word from the cross. And his final word from the cross is, it is finished. We're going to return to that in a minute. But what happens after this, after Jesus' final word, there's just, it says he bows his head, which is a very peaceful thing. He is peaceful in his death. This is no, for all the violence, this is no violent moment here. This is a moment of peace. And he gives up his spirit. That phrase suggests that he continues to be in control of his fate, that his death is a voluntary death. He is voluntarily dying, giving up his spirit um, in order to accomplish God's purposes of salvation. And looking on, we're going to find a little bit more about what those purposes of salvation are. Um, Because as we look in the next verses, verses 31 through 37, what do we see happening here? We hear that um, they have to hurry and get the bodies off the crosses because the Sabbath is coming, and not just any Sabbath, but the Sabbath during the Passover feast, which is a high Sabbath. And so it's extra important to get these bodies off of the crosses. What do they ask Pilate to do? They ask to have the legs broken of the three on the crosses so that they might be taken away. And it says in verse 32 that the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other on the other side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
this in my little comment that yeah. this breaking of the legs happened to die. Yeah. It did. It speeded up their death. Um, so th- because they, it was a long and slow, painful death, um, which they would have all been aware of this in the first century, which is why one of the reasons that I'm going to talk about another reason why the gospel writers don't tell us much more about the actual crucifixion. They all knew what it was, and they didn't want to talk about it because it was so horrible. Didn't need to talk about it. It was so horrible. It was a very long, slow death through um, asphyxiation, um, essentially. But breaking of the legs would cause the death to occur sooner. And Jesus, it's thought that Jesus died more quickly than the two on either side of him because of the beating that he had endured. It was unusual for someone to be flogged so thoroughly and then also receive this this sentence of crucifixion. Um, and so that's thought why he wasn't able to carry the cross. The cross It was just the cross beam that he would have carried to Golgotha. Um, and in the other Gospels it says that Simon of Cyrene carried it for him for a little while. But... Um, all of that to say he, his body couldn't have handled much more. So it's not a surprise that he has died first. But John, remember, John is there as an eyewitness. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. In other words, I'm telling you, I saw this happen with my own eyes. And it made an impression on John seeing this breaking of the legs of the other men and then seeing how they concluded and determined for sure that Jesus was in fact dead was through the, th- the soldier who thrust Jesus, it pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And what comes out of his side as it is pierced with a spear? Blood and water. Well, there's some thought that medically that would have signified that he had been dead and that the, the, his body was already... Um, not, it's not decomposing, it's that the organs had shut down and the fluid had um, kind of collapsed in one place so that the fluid would all come out and that the blood and the water had, essentially that his heart had not been working, right? Um, I don't know much more about the medical side of it, but it, a lot of doctors have looked at it and thought that that, that makes sense based on what they know. But John is not important, he is not concerned with the medical side except to say he really was dead to counter those who might say, oh, well, we believe that Jesus never really died. He revived. Um, no, Jesus was really dead. So he's bearing witness to the fact that Jesus died, but also out of his side comes blood and water. And throughout John's gospel, the water is a sign of eternal life. And Jesus's blood is something that he mentions in John 6. He talks about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is so hard for them to hear, it sounds like cannibalism, you have no life in you. And what he's talking about is being unified as believers in Jesus with him in his death. And one of the things that we see about this is that there is no life, no eternal life for us without Jesus' death, and yet his death brings life and health and peace and forgiveness for us. And we see even a foreshadowing of the use of the two sacraments that Jesus commanded that we use as Christians as a way of remembering him and as a way of signifying our union with him through faith. The water is the water of baptism and the blood is the wine of the cup of um, Holy Communion. So we remember that and we see these things and um, John is saying he testifies about this and he's telling us this and recording this 
in his gospel, and he says why specifically in um, verse 35, that you also may believe. Throughout John's gospel, belief is associated specifically with eternal life. We believe on Jesus and the promises of God in him are ours as well. Um, that um, the atonement that Jesus has made is applied to us through faith in him. Um, one more thing about this fulfillment of scripture in verse 36. It says um, that this not breaking of his bones, this piercing of his flesh, the piercing is, um, John understands that in light of Zechariah, but the um, breaking of his bones, the, the perfect bones of Jesus, John understands in light of Exodus 12, which was the passage we read last night, that looks at the Passover lamb and has the instructions for the people of Israel about choosing the Passover lamb. There could be no blemish or spot on the Passover lamb. You could have no, um, no broken bones, no nothing. He had to be perfect. And um, this is John's way of alluding to Jesus as being the true Passover lamb. And we think that this is the case, that he tells us this information he doesn't tell the other gospel writers for that reason, that he is speaking specifically to the Jewish audience who would have read his gospel, who would have celebrated Passover so many times and have known that the Passover lamb was the sacrifice so that those of that household in Egypt could get, uh, it, the Israelite household in Egypt could be free from slavery in Egypt and could be free from the judgment that was going to come on each Egyptian household. Because in that final plague, each Egyptian household lost their firstborn son. And yet the Israelites were protected from that judgment and from that death because of the blood of the lamb that's over the, lim uh, the lintel and the doorposts on their houses. Death passed over. And death passes over us as well as we believe in Jesus. There's one more little detail that supports this that John is showing us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And that's going back to verse 29. When they give Jesus this sour wine on a sponge, John alone, not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, they don't tell us how they're trying to get this wine to him. But John alone tells us that they um, give it to him on a hyssop branch. Why would John tell us this? Hyssop branch is a special kind of branch that was associated specifically with Passover and with the Passover lamb. It was used with the Passover lamb. It was specifically a hyssop branch that the Israelites would have used to dip in the blood of the Passover lamb and put the blood on the, on the doorposts of their house. Isn't that amazing that John is using this one mention of hyssop to draw our minds and the Jewish minds reading this specifically to that truth that Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist earlier in John's Gospel when in verse um, 29 of chapter 1, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again in verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God. Now John here in chapter 19 is showing us. He's not even telling us. He's just showing us. And saying, even as he stood there at the foot of the cross, John himself, he's saying, I saw it. I'm telling you it's true. Behold the Lamb of God. And there sits Jesus. Jesus is enthroned. That's the other thing that John is showing us, is that Jesus is enthroned on this cross. 
a strange kind of throne, and yet a throne for the kind of king who would humble himself in order to bring his own fallen and rebellious subjects back into relationship with him. Jesus is there shown to be the king of the Jews. The title over his head, the crown on his head, point to this truth. And then even in his burial, there's one more detail that points to this truth of Jesus as the king. And that's that Nicodemus, well, first of all, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both wealthy and powerful leaders in Jerusalem who have believed in secret. And I wonder if they felt ashamed of the fact that they weren't able to speak out during Jesus' trial. They weren't able to stop what happened. Maybe they didn't have the courage to do that, the courage to follow Jesus during his lifetime. And yet now in his death, they're bold and they want to show and they're willing to risk their position and their power and spend great money on burying Jesus with honor. They come forward to honor Jesus. And um, Joseph honors Jesus with his very own unused tomb. Nicodemus honors Jesus by bringing 75 pounds of spices, those 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, in order to embalm Jesus' body. That was enough um, for the burial of a king. He is lavishing on Jesus um, the love and the honor that he didn't give to him during Jesus' lifetime. Here Jesus is buried with pomp and circumstance as the king that he is. So one last thing before we go, I know we're right at time, but I just want to point out to you something that, um, again, with the passion being on um, on TV the last couple of nights, and I don't know, how many of you have seen Mel Gibson's passion, The Passion? There's something that um, we, we always dwell on the suffering of Jesus on the cross. We look at it um, and we talk about it and there's um, one I'm going to read you something about crucifixion itself Um, nothing could be more horrible than the penalty of crucifixion nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body breathing seeing hearing still able to feel and yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness This penalty of crucifixion combined all that any ardent tormentor could desire, torture, the pillory, degradation, and certain death, distilled slowly, drop by drop. So sad and so hard for us to think about Jesus' suffering, his agony, the torment that he was in. But the truth of it is that the evangelists, unlike all of us as we watch The Passion, unlike Mel Gibson, the evangelists make no attempt to play on our heartstrings. They don't describe this agony and anguish, do they? They say in one word, each of them, at the very beginning of, of this passage, John tells us very tersely, so they took Jesus, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. That's it. There they crucified him. No screenshot dwelling on the nails going into his flesh. Just there they crucified him. That's all they needed to say. It's almost as though Jesus there enthroned on the cross is um, enthroned with such glory and beauty 
in his selflessness, in his humility, in his sacrifice, that it's indescribable. His love and his suffering are indescribable. I love that favorite, one of my favorite hymns says, sorrow and love flow mingled down to evoke the blood and the water from Jesus' side. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. And that, for me, is almost more powerful than dwelling on the anguish. The anguish is too much for me to think about. And I wonder if for the evangelists it was too much. They could, couldn't go there and look at that. And they didn't want to play on our heartstrings, but they want us to see all around this fulfillment of Scripture, everything that is said and done around Jesus while he's on the cross, pointing continually to his identity so that his action on our behalf has so much more meaning because he is not just someone suffering and dying, uh, some poor soul, some um, idealist that failed. No, he's actually the king of the universe. He's actually the son of God. He is the word made flesh. So I see this kind of almost this blindness to actually seeing Jesus on the cross on the part of the evangelist as um, a, a, in continuity with the way the Old Testament prophets talked about this a little bit before. Do you remember when Isaiah sees the altar in heaven, when Ezekiel sees the moving chariot? Whenever the prophets of the, Old, of the Old Testament have a vision, a theophany it's called, like David in Psalm 18, whenever they see God acting, coming down and acting on behalf of their people, of his people, they can't describe the one who sits on the throne. Whenever there's a description of God on his throne, it gets the language gets really choppy, and they talk about everything all around the throne, but the description of the one on the throne is too much. Words cannot describe the one on the throne. So they talk about, um, in these theophanies, or these visions of God Almighty, they talk about thunder and lightning, uh, chariot, you know, these wheels of fire, eyes all around, and rainbows, and burnished bronze, but it's as though the face of the one on the throne is too holy, too beautiful, too majestic for the prophet to describe with words. And that's almost the way these evangelists talk about Jesus on the cross. His beauty there, reigning and dying for us, is too beautiful to even describe with words. So they, they describe everything that happens around him. They leave it to our imagination, um, the beauty of Jesus' suffering. So on that note, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the beauty of your love for us, that you would even be willing to humble yourself to the point of dying on a cross for us in order to um, bring about the forgiveness of our sins, to bring us eternal life and freedom from eternal death, freedom from condemnation in this life, and fellowship with you and the Father. And so we ask now on this Good Friday, would you send us out with that knowledge that we have been bought with your blood and that we belong to you, that you are ours and we are yours, um, and that on this day you have paved the way back for us home. So Lord, even as we go out from here, anoint us, empower us, strengthen us, and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome.